Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Welcome, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, TK Coleman. Cheers to the world. Malabama's here. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team in the studio as well. Big thanks to you, our Patreon subscribers. You keep this podcast 100% advertisement-free because... Say it with me at home, y'all. Advertisements, Advertisements suck. suck. Yes, they do. Let's start with our callers today. A whole lot to cover on this show. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Kayleen in Burbank, California. What are your thoughts on buying in bulk for um, someone trying to be a minimalist? You know, uh, do you want <laughs> to go buy 10 bars of soap or do you want to just buy one? Or is it better to save money and buy in bulk? Or I don't know. That was just my thought. Thanks. Bye. Here's what I'll say, TK. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I think we're always buying in bulk. No one buys their toothpaste. I was just downstairs brushing my teeth before this podcast because I knew you couldn't tolerate my morning breath. (laughs) (laughs) I don't buy my toothpaste one nurdle at a time. I buy a whole tube of toothpaste. Or maybe I buy two tubes of toothpaste. Or Mm -hmm. maybe Kayleen wants to buy 10 tubes of toothpaste. So we're always buying in bulk to some extent. You don't buy your toilet paper one square at a time. You don't buy your soap one dollop at a time. Mm -hmm. You don't buy anything that is one specific unit. It can always be broken down into something. And so when I think about it this way, it relieves the pressure. The question for me is, what is most appropriate for my life? If I'm buying in bulk, what am I buying? I'm buying enough for me and my family that fits within my home without burdening me because anything can be clutter if it gets in the way. I don't go to Costco and buy an entire pallet of toilet paper. It doesn't make sense. It also doesn't make sense for me to go out and procure just one square of toilet paper (laughs) every time I need it. We call these just for win items. Mm. In the Minimalist Rulebook, which, Kaylin, you can download at our website. It's free, theminimalists.com slash rulebook. There are 16 rules for living with less. One of those rules is the just for win rule. And many of the things that we buy in bulk... We're going to buy them just for when we need them. And so when I think about my home and the amount of space that I have, what is appropriate for that amount of space? However, let me clarify something. In my kitchen, I have a cabinet that's completely empty. There's not a single thing in it. And occasionally Mm. I'll go open it and I'm like, wait a minute, there's nothing in here. And my first impulse is what? I should fill this with stuff. Oh, this is a great place to put stuff. And that would be fine if I needed a space to store my stuff. I just have some excess space. 
But just because I have extra space doesn't mean I need to fill it. I don't now need to go out to Rite Aid and buy a bunch more toilet paper and tissues and soap and, and uh, um, uh, floss or whatever. I'm just going to throw it into this cabinet. No, I can leave it empty. It's okay that that is empty. But if I need the extra space, wonderful. I have it. But I also don't want to overflow my entire space just because I have the space. Hey, very quickly, why do you have that cabinet all together? Yeah, that's a great question. So why is it there? Yeah. Because when we purchased the home, the cabinet was there. And we started filling up the cabinets with our stuff. We realized, oh, there's some extra storage space that we have here that we're not going to use, at least not right now. Yeah. I like your observation, man, that we're always buying in bulk. You know, here's the way I think about it. When you go to a restaurant and you order an entree, the server usually will ask, what kind of side would you like with that? Well, if we had a minimalist restaurant, the only dish would be wholeness, by the way, and I were a server. I'd go up to our guest and I'd say, what kind of abundance would you like with that, right? How do you like your bulk? For some people, it's an abundance of alone time. For other people, it's an abundance of company. For some people, it's an abundance of convenience that comes with buying all your things at once and never having to make multiple runs to the store. For some people, it's the abundance of space, a neat orderly home, and I will go to the store as many times as I need in order to preserve that. And I think that's the question that helps you filter things out and make important decisions about when to get rid of something, when to let it go, how much of it to buy, and how much of it to wait for later. How do you like your abundance? And as far as being a good minimalist is concerned, figure out what are the things in your life that keep you from being good to you and good to others, and then just minimize that. And you're a good minimalist by definition. Oh, I love this thought of abundance because there are different resources in our lives. One is our money. And yes, so if you buy something in bulk, you tend to save money. But if it drives you crazy because now you have a pallet of toilet paper in your bedroom, oh, now you don't have that kind of abundance. Yeah. In fact, you're robbing yourself of peace and tranquility. Or maybe your abundance is, I really enjoy going to the store. It's when I get to go out three times a week and browse the aisles of Rite Aid or Whole Foods or Ralph's or wherever you're going to purchase these items. And maybe you enjoy that. Or maybe you hate going to the store. And so <laughs> yeah, buying yeah. in bulk keeps you from having to go to the store repeatedly. What does that type of abundance look like to you? What a beautiful question. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the law of conservation of mass and energy, right? Where we say mass and energy is never destroyed. It's just transformed or reconfigured. And that's sort of what our relationship to stuff is like. Abundance is never destroyed. Bulk is never destroyed. We're just reconfiguring it. We're just altering our relationship with stuff so that we're moving that abundance into the areas where we enjoy it the most. Instead of having an abundance of stuff, I'm going to have an abundance of flexibility. Or instead of having an abundance of opinions in my life, I'm going to have an abundance of self-confidence, right? Whatever it is, it's about figuring out what's the form of abundance that makes me come alive and then optimizing for that. That's what minimalism is. And there's a level of certainty that I absolutely enjoy from my version of buying in bulk. I don't go to Sam's Club or Costco personally. I don't have any problem with those places. I just don't have one near me. Okay. And so I don't go there, but I do buy things in bulk. I, mm. Usually I'll buy my uh, toothpaste, like three or four tubes at a time because yep. we have multiple bathrooms and I keep a toothbrush in several areas of my house yep. and I enjoy this. So I have bulk toothbrushes. I have bulk 
toilet paper. I have bulk uh, toothpaste, but I don't have so much that it is getting in the way. That's when it becomes clutter for me. But I absolutely hate running out of something personally. Mm. Now, for some people, they don't mind it. I'll, I'll just get by without it. I'll buy some more toothpaste tomorrow, whatever it is. But if I run out of something, it is so frustrating to me. So I always make sure I have at least one backup. That is my version of buying in bulk. No matter what, I yeah. have a backup because that is what works for me. And that's not a prescription. That may not work for you. Or for you, you might want to have 10 backups because you've decided that that's what you need for comfort and certainty. At some point, yeah. it's overdoing it. I can't have a backup for everything in my life, but for the things that I use regularly, for those just for when consumable items, I enjoy having a backup because I don't want to run out. And if it gives me that certainty, then I'm not worried about that. And it's not creating that mental clutter in the back of my mind. Yeah. So one area for me where bulk creates abundance is razors. My hair grows back super fast, man. I could have an afro in no time. And so I have to <laughs> shave like every two days. If I wait two days, then I've, I've got that hair growing. And there's nothing more frustrating, man, than needing to shave, wanting to shave. You can feel like the itchiness of everything growing back and, and you open the cabinet and you don't have any razors. And so if someone bought me just a big box of razors, I'd find the space for it. I'd prioritize it. I'd get rid of something else because that is a convenience that brings great abundance into my life. On the other hand, here's an abundance temptation that I have to say no to. When it comes to books, if I find a book that I really like and it's part of like a 10 book set, I'm the type of person where I'm committed. I am absolutely going to read that entire set if I'm going to read this one because I want the context and I want to really dive in deeply. And so the temptation is, hey, let's spend $350 right now to get the 10 book set so that it's already there. But then I say no to that because you know what? I haven't even finished the first book yet. And all I'm going to do is take up space and it's going to take me a long time to get to those other books. So Let's just say no to that, even though everything in me is saying, oh, but they'll look so much better on my shelf, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have to find those areas where it's healthiest for us to say no to some forms of bulk and to say yes to other forms of bulk. And the ones that we say yes to, it's really not bulk, it's abundance. That's right. And whenever we're saying yes, yes, yes on impulse... That is not what we're talking about here. In fact, we have something called the wait for it rule. It's mm -hmm. in the minimalist rule book as well. If I feel that impulse to buy a book or to buy some of the checkout line or I'm on Amazon, all of a sudden it's recommending something. Oh, I can just one click purchase it now. How easy would that be? No, I'm going to give myself 30 hours. If I still need it after 30 hours, then I can give myself permission to buy it. But quite often when I put that distance between me and the impulse, it turns out, I don't even remember the book that I had to have right now when I was at the bookstore or I was checking out online. Another question here. This one is from Mischin. Hey, Josh and Ryan. My name is Mischin and I'm from Weatherford, Texas. I was looking up your documentary to share with some friends now that it's on YouTube. And I found the following thumbnail stating, Minimalism is dead. How minimalism got toxic to the dark side. My first instinct was that this was clickbait. And I chose not to watch it because it did immediately evoke or bait some anger out of me. From my experience, most videos that speak against minimalism choose to pour the foundation of their argument on you and your message while seemingly failing to understand what your core message is. However, this is where I felt torn and then curious. As someone who now goes out of his way to not consume things that are intentionally negative, should things like this just be ignored? I don't want to listen to someone sloppily explain the whole 
here's why the thing that works for you is wrong argument? Or is it my responsibility to learn what they have to say, even if it may not be substantial and they are just baiting views? It seems equally bad on my part to just block out things I don't immediately agree with. Is it worth the time and attention spent opening my mind up to them, or is it better off left alone? What are your thoughts on this type of content? Now, TK, over the years, a lot of people have made videos like this about the minimalists or about minimalism in general. The video he's talking about, I've seen it because Mallory sent it to me months ago, and uh, it was me and Ryan on the cover of this. <laughs> and we actually ended up doing an interview, you'll recall, with yeah. the the people who created this. And here's what I figure out with a lot of these hit pieces or negative pieces about an idea, if you deeply desire to misunderstand someone, you will find a thousand ways to misinterpret them. And the opposite is also true. If you're determined to understand someone or something, you will find a way. You will ask the questions, you will take the time, you will do the investigating and so on. But you know, what I think about this is that it's not just a minimalism thing. And I don't say that to make life easier for minimalists. I say it because there's always a market for the dark side of anything that brings light into another person's life. I, I would invite everyone to do the following experiment. Get online and just think about a, a celebrity, a creator, a project, a film, anything meaningful in this world that you like. And then Google something like the dark side of X, the real truth behind X. TK and, Coleman exposed. <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah, X exposed. And you will find something because there's always a market for it. It's 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 an intrinsic need we have. It's it, it, it's part of the whole um Rene Girard's what, what what's the name of it? I um ah oh, man, I I forget the name of the concept uh, I'm thinking about, but how we build something up and then we tear it down. There's just always a market for that, man. And so you have to be careful because we tend to think trends and fads only pertain to stuff that people like, but it also pertains to smack talk about that. So if there's anything that's doing good in the world, there's definitely going to be a market for people talking smack about that. And I don't think you owe it to the minimalist or to minimalism to avoid or ignore that stuff. I think you're entirely free to indulge in it. And I actually think it can be a good thing because it keeps you on your toes. It helps you to think critically about what you do. And even when you don't agree with people's criticisms of you, sometimes just by hearing them, being aware of them, it keeps you anchored. It keeps you human. And it helps you respect the fact that sometimes human beings are sincere in their rejection of what you do and what you think. And that's okay. The less you can be threatened by that kind of stuff, the more you can get out of whatever it is you've decided to do. And so we do need, however, a philosophy of attention. As I've often said, attention is like money. And if you're willing to spend it on anything, you'll eventually be duped out of everything. And so you have to decide in this world where there's more information than any of us have time and ability to consume, what am I going to ignore? Not because I'm being dogmatic and closed-minded, but because I'm respecting the fact that as a human being, I only have so much time here and I want to make sure I spend it on the people and the things that matter most to me. Yeah. Talk about buying in bulk. What are you, it's the one thing that you have the most limited resource of is your attention. I can focus on only one thing right now. I can't 
spend my attention in bulk. And there are no refunds for misspent attention as well. Yeah. And so the question I often ask about my resources, money being one of them, if I'm buying something, is this the best use of this money? But what the question you're asking here, TK, is, is this the best use of my attention? And if the answer to that is, well, maybe, then okay, you can give it a shot. I'm not here to tell you that don't watch the video about yeah. uh, anti-minimalism or whatever. It might give you a, a fascinating perspective. I could tell you there are a few serious misunderstandings within a video like that because we, we saw that. But there have been hundreds of others. I'm sure that they misunderstand us. But it's not my job to get everyone to understand what's going on in my head. And for the longest time, I would get really frustrated, not from the criticism itself, but for being misunderstood. How can I be so misunderstood? Well, what I've formed a detente with is I realized that if you put anything out in the world, an appreciable number of people witness it, consume it, take it in, guess what happens? You're going to be misunderstood by someone. Yeah. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, they might not just understand. And it's not my job to fix that, to fix the behavior, to change the way that they perceive me. And as soon as I let that go, Oh, how freeing is that? I don't need to change the way you think about me. However you think about me, if you think I'm wonderful and delightful, awesome. If you don't think that, that's okay too. Yeah. Who am I to think that I'm going to be the first human being in history to make it through life perfectly understood? Oh, that's so good. Mission, I'm glad you enjoyed the documentary. It is now on YouTube, or you could find it at minimalism.com as well. It's our first documentary, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, directed by our friend Matt Diavella. And if you'd like to help us out, it's 100% advertisement free as well. And millions of people have seen it. Over 80 million people saw it on Netflix. And now millions of people have already seen it over on YouTube. If you want to help it, because the algorithm doesn't push it, because there are no ads associated with it. And by the way, I'm not owed anything from the algorithm on YouTube. If you want to help it out, all you have to do is go on there, leave a comment, give it a thumbs up, share the link with someone who you think will find value in that documentary. That will help us reach more people and our message reach more people, 100% advertisement free. Mm. Another question here. This one is from Yoga Mama. Hello, the minimalist. I'm a yoga mama from London, UK. I have a question regarding the registration and accreditations. There are so many professional associations and organizations that provide accreditations just for assurance, even though they're not a legal requirement. How do we minimize those various professional membership and to know what is really necessary while I still run my own business confidently? To me, it feels like just a money-making rather than necessity. But still people look at this accreditation as important when they make a choice to sign up for the course. I understand to maintain certain standard of the training, but in reality, I never find it any useful in practice. For example, I'm a yoga teacher and a trainer. There are accredited organizations that we can register just to be recognized as a professional teacher and slash or trainer, such as Yoga Alliance, etc. And not only that, but there are US one and UK one separately, which make it even more conf confusing. It's not required to register for both, not even one at all, to teach and run training, to be honest. But then many people still do, and um, 
that make more people in schools to look for those professional stumps from organizations. It's only cost us more money just to maintain all of that and also the stress of renewals and expiry, etc. How do we make this more simple and a minimal to what we really need so that we do not waste a lot of money, time and energy on those? Please advise. Thank you. TK, I know you have some thoughts on accreditation. Here's my initial thought is the size of the certificate does not correlate with the size of the skill set. Mm, that's good. Because what happens is we often conflate the certificate that we get, the diploma that we get, as though that is also the skills that we have. But we all know, I mean, I've been to a bunch of yoga classes, Yoga Mama, and I can tell you that I've never once checked their certification. <laughs> right, right, and right. I wouldn't be more impressed if they had a yoga degree from Harvard. Yeah. What I care about is their sort of bedside manner, so to speak. How confident are they in what they do? How kind are they? How do I fit into what they're doing? How does this relate to me and my experience of this class? And the same is true with dentists and doctors. I mean, I do want my doctor to have some sort of a medical degree because of the system that we have set up. But rarely am I concerned, oh, did he go to UCLA or USC? Because I'm only going to go to the ones that went to USC. I would never go to a doctor who went to UCLA or or whatever. Mm. That doesn't even make any sense to me, right? And so I'm interested in your thoughts about accreditation. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything inherently dangerous about questioning things. But I do believe it's the death of humanity when we treat certain categories of things as if they are beyond questioning. You know, when we question something that is unhealthy or when we refuse to question something that's unhealthy, we risk reinforcing those self-destructive habits in our lives. When we refuse to question something that is healthy, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to get the most out of it because we don't understand why we do it. And so whether it's good or bad, whether it's true or false, we always benefit from questioning it. And credentials, that's one of those categories of things that has achieved this religious status where it becomes blasphemous for us to question it. But I think something that people need to remember is that credentials are a product in the marketplace, just like pencils, just like coffee cups, just like coffee itself. And just because something is being sold to you doesn't mean that it's worth buying. You know, I can can put a price tag on anything. I can say, I'm selling this pen for a billion dollars. That's just what the price tag says. It doesn't become worth a billion dollars until someone says, I care enough about having that pen that I'm willing to give you a billion dollars. But prior to that transaction taking place, all we have is just the brother assigning arbitrary value to something for whatever reason. And when it comes to credentials, credentials are simply a signal. They are a way of saying to a potential client, these are the hoops I have jumped through. These are the skills that I have acquired. These are the relationships I've established or whatever that credential represents. And what you have to ask yourself before you're considering investing in your in a credential, because there are some things that are a waste of time and there are some things that are good. You got to ask yourself, who are the people I'm, I'm, I'm interested in serving? Who are the clients, potential and actual, that I want to do business with? And what do they think about this credential? And if you want to serve clients who say, I don't trust any accountants, I don't trust any designers, I don't trust any teachers without those credentials, then you have to honor the rules of the game you've decided you want to play. 
On the other hand, if your clients are like, hey, man, I don't care where you went to school or whether you have that or not. I just want a good haircut and I've seen the quality of work that you've done with other people. I'm willing to pay you. Well, then there you go. And so it's really not about what society at large is telling you. And it's definitely not what about the advertisers of these credentials are selling you. It's about the people that you want to serve and what they need to trust you. And whether that's a credential from an institution or it's simply a body of work. And sometimes that's the best potential. That's the best credential. But whether it's that or, or something else, it's all about just signaling to other people that you're the person that has what they need. I've gotten a terrible haircut from someone who is a certified hair cutter, right? And I, when I listen to a podcast, I'm not looking for a certified podcaster. Now, someone else might. Oh, you must certified in what way? Well, I, I worked in radio for at least a decade and therefore, or when I first stumbled across minimalism, I wasn't like, oh, Leo Babalta, is he a certified minimalist? Mm. No, it was about that body of work you were talking about. Yeah. When I saw Colin Wright or Joshua Becker or Courtney Carver, none of them were certified in simplicity. Yeah. But I saw what they had created for their own lives. And so I personally didn't value that credential that much. Now, for someone else, you need that credential. That MD at the end means something. Uh, My friend Paul Saladino, he uh, is a medical doctor, right? And a lot of people listen to him because he's a medical doctor. But he'd be the first person to tell you, I don't need this degree to talk about the things that I'm talking about. But for some people, he recognizes, oh, there's some value in having those letters behind my name. In fact, for me, it becomes a bit of a turnoff when someone is always touting a bunch of letters at the end of their name, because I'm like, what are you compensating for? Yeah. You know, I I look at credentials in terms of uniforms. If someone were to ask me, hey, do I have to be the kind of person who's willing to wear uniforms? My response would be, hey, you do you and just understand that there are social costs you're going to have to pay either way. So if you're the type of person who's willing to wear a uniform, then that means there are certain doors that will be open to you. And it also means that, you know, um, you're going to have an easier time in certain areas of your life. But if you're the type of person who says, I don't like uniforms, I'm not mad at you. I don't think that's an objectively wrong position, but also understand there are some places that won't hire you unless you put on the khakis and the red shirt. Yeah. Unless you put on all black or whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. But there are always people out there who can accommodate that as well. And you just may have to go about life in a different way. So sometimes it's not just about, hey, what's the price I'm willing to pay to have something? But it's also about what's the work I'm willing to do in order to create life on my terms? You can make a life with those credentials. You can make a life without those credentials. And you can't figure out the right answer by just asking other people. You've got to take an honest look at what are the social costs you have to pay for whatever position you take and what are you willing to do to deal with those costs. And so are those credentials useful? Or have they become clutter? I found this with my wife. You know, she's a dietitian and a nutritionist. She went to school for it, got her master's degree, is a registered dietitian or was a registered dietitian. She let it lapse last year because she realized like, oh, in order for me to understand nutrition, I don't need to jump through some hoops. In fact, those hoops might get in the way of my actual learning. Yeah. And so she decided to declutter her credentials, Mm. to let it go. It served her for a period of time, but it doesn't serve her anymore. So it's also okay to let go of the credentials when they get in the way. 
real quick, it, it kind of reminds me of tech clutter as well. There is a tendency, especially in the world of social media marketing, to treat every new app that comes out or every new tool as something like, oh, I, I got to learn how to use it. I got to get it. And I got to make sure that I'm on that social media site mm-hmm. before we even know where it's going or how it relates to our broader mission. And I think that's true of credentials too. Every time some new form of credentialing comes out, it can be easy to feel that pressure of like, oh, if I want to be taken seriously in the world, I need to get that. What's your mission? Who do you want to serve? Where are you going? And focus on the tools that are going to get you there. And in some cases, you might already be there. Yeah. And the credential does not change who you are as a person. It is, as you said, a way to signal to the world that you might, might have a particular skill set. Another question here. This one is from Sally. Hi, this is Sally, and I'm from Washington State. My question is on financial freedom. Like every good American, I have four or five credit cards. Do you recommend focusing on paying off one and then moving to the next or making payments above the minimum to each one every time? Like I was thinking, should I just focus on paying off one and continue to make, you know, above a minimum payment and then move to the next one? I just would like your thoughts. Thank you. Sally, yes, there is a minimalist approach to this. It's what our good friend Dave Ramsey refers to as the debt snowball. And I think the reason I like the debt snowball so much is mathematically, it's not 100% intellectual because there are times, let's say you have, like Sally, you have five different credit cards. And I resonate with you, Sally, because I used to have 14 at my Nadir. Yeah. I had 14 credit cards because every time I'd go to Banana Republic, I don't even shop there, but they're like, would you like to save 10% on the $79 shirt? Oh. And first off, I'm like, well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm already spending too much on the shirt, but I could save 10%. Wow. And you sign up for a credit card and then you eventually, now you have give permission to go back and spend money that you don't really have mm-hmm. on a bunch of shirts you don't really need to impress people with my wardrobe. Look at me. And so that's a type of signaling as well. And so what happens is our purchasing decisions are not rational. Clearly, when we go out and get credit cards, we're not making a rational decision. I am making myself contented today. I'm really pacifying myself today to buy something and get it right now, that immediate gratification, but I'm punishing myself tomorrow and next month and next year and not just with the future payment, but with all of the interest. And so this decision is costing me more than once. It's going to cost me tomorrow and the next day and the next day and it will continue to cost me until I until I pay it off, right? And so what I love about the debt snowball is it accounts for that irrational side of us. It says line up all of your debts, smallest to largest, pay the minimum payment on all of them. So if you have five credit cards and you owe $100 here and $1,000 here and $2,000 here and $3,000 and $4,000, you find the smallest one, you pay all of the minimum monthly payments, And then you tackle that smallest debt until it snowballs its way up. Now, why is that? Because you get the momentum of being able to pay something off. And as soon as you pay that off, you feel good. Oh, I got rid of this one. Finally got rid of it. Never doing that again. Cut up the credit cards. I'm not going back into debt. You feel the pain, but you also feel the relief of the pain that you've created for yourself. That's right. If you're driving from Chicago to San Francisco 
for the overwhelming majority of your trip, you're going to be somewhere other than San Francisco. And so for almost the entire ride, it's going to feel like I'm not in San Francisco yet. I've been driving for six hours, 12 hours. I'm not in San Francisco yet. Why don't we get discouraged and give up? Because we have these little markers along the way that lets us know, oh, we're getting closer. I'm no longer in Chicago, no longer in the state of Illinois. And it's that ability to measure progress that increases our motivation and self-confidence. And what I love about the snowball technique is, like you said, it gives you those little wins so that you can say, I'm not out of debt yet. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm also not where I used to be. And I am making progress. And that helps you keep going and just inspires you a lot. I'll say one more thing about this too. Um, I heard a guy say that, All he ever ate was like candy and chips. If it wasn't found in the snack aisle of a gas station, he didn't eat it. And so he made up his mind that he'd start eating healthier. And so he started with smoothies because that's all he knew. And right away, all of his friends were like, man, you got to be careful with that sugar. And his response was, where were you guys when I was throwing back eight sodas a day, eating chips and candy all day? You were nowhere to be found. But the moment I try to do something healthy, you're all on top of me about how much better I could be doing it. And one thing I want to say here is that no matter what you do to move your finances, your family, your life in a healthier direction, there's always going to be someone who's going to come along and say, hey, you know, there's a better technique than that. There's a better way to apply that technique than that. And half the time, those people are going to be right because they've been doing it longer than you. They know all the nuances and so on. But what's the best way for you to do it? You can't get that answer from without. The best way for you to do it is to choose the path that you're most likely to follow that's going to help you get started and build momentum. If I had two books and one book promised to make you 10 times smarter, the other book promised to only make you two times smarter, but the book that made you 10 times smarter was so boring, you knew if you're being honest with yourself, you're never going to read it. The book that only makes you two times smarter is super interesting and you know for sure you can't put it down. Which book should you start with? The one that promises to make you smarter or the one that you'll actually read and build some momentum with. Better to make some progress than to be perfect in someone someone else's eyes, but not actually do anything. That's so good. And I love how you can apply that to food, as you just did. But you can also apply the debt snowball to your material possessions. Mm -hmm. I think this quite often happens. In fact, we did a version of this. We call it the 30-day minimalism game. There's a free calendar that people can download at theminimalists.com slash game. But no one knows where to start when they start decluttering their homes. Yeah. You look around and say, I have 300,000 items. It's all so overwhelming. I'm just going to throw my hands up and do nothing. Procrastinate. Do something else. Pacify myself. Yeah. Avoid letting go. And when we do that, the overwhelm also compounds. Just like debt compounds if you wow. don't pay it off. The same thing is true with the anxiety, the stress, the discontent we feel around our material possessions. And so what we said with the minimalism game is it's simple. The very first day of the month, you get rid of one item because anyone can get rid of one item. Is that going to declutter your home? No. Is it going to make a big difference? Probably not, but you've started somewhere. And the second day, two items. Third day, three items. Now you're getting that momentum and you realize by the 15th of the month, oh wow, I have to get rid of 15 things today, but it's easy. I got rid of 14 yesterday. It's getting a little bit more difficult because tomorrow I have to get rid of 16 items and you partner up with someone. You make the decluttering a little bit more fun. You have an accountability partner there as well that keeps you going, allows you to let go, helps you let go, encourages you to let go, whether you're letting go of 
the debt, you're letting go of the junk food, or you're letting go of excess material possessions. I find that it helps to get that momentum and have someone with you to help hold you accountable. Yeah, you know, so here's an example, like uh, hypothetically, imagine if you had the task um, of building a house and and that's your job. You got to build this house. But each day you get an additional person that you can pick to help you build a house. So the first day it's going to be really hard because no one can build a house all by themselves. But then day two, you get to pick someone to help you and you can get more done, but you're not going to effectively build a house. But day three comes, day four comes. By the time you're on day day 30, you've got 30 people that you've picked to help you and it's starting to get really easy and the process just goes on and on. Each time you let go of something that's weighing you down, that's holding you back, it's like adding energy to your life that makes it easier for you to create the results that matter most to you. Because what does it mean for something to weigh you down? What does it mean for something to hold you back? It's constraining your creative energy and keeping you from doing the work that makes you come alive. And so getting rid of stuff that you don't want isn't about fulfilling a religious requirement or being a good minimalist in someone else's eyes. It's about adding new energy to your team because it's like you're getting pieces of yourself back, pieces of yourself that were just like, imprisoned by all the anxiety and stress and clutter that came from managing so much more than what you needed, what you wanted, and what you could handle. Let's move on to some social media questions. We've got one from David on Instagram. I agree with the positive benefits of minimalism in a consumerist society, but when did this podcast turn into a panel of pseudo-counselors telling us how the human mind works? Life and relationships are far more complicated than a soundbite. Uh, Episode 351 is the answer to that question, David. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I I love the, uh, so when did this podcast turn into, it's it's, uh, in philosophy, we call that the loaded question where by answering the question, you incriminate yourself in either direction. So if I say, Josh, when did you start murdering people? Uh, last Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, is, is there any room to question the assumption upon which that question is based? If so, I like to exercise that option. If not, then um, I don't think I can help. But no, um, it, anyway, I, I, I interrupted you. I want to hear your thoughts. No, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, this podcast is about the willingness to walk away. Yeah. And we talk about minimalism with respect to a consumerist society, as David points out. Yeah, we do talk about that. And your willingness to walk away from possessions, it sort of develops the muscle that helps you let go of other types of clutter, relationship clutter, uh, calendar clutter, career clutter. I was doing a podcast episode with my friend, Chris Ryan. He wrote Civilized to Death and Sex at Dawn. And I was on his show recently and he brought up this really fascinating term, concern clutter. Mm. And that's what I see in David's question or statement with a, it's his really a statement appended with a question mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has this level of concern. In fact, yeah. online we call it concern trolling sometimes, right? We're pretending to be concerned. But what I loved about what Chris Ryan was saying about this, Chris Ryan, PhD, by the way, he's credentialed. Um, <laughs> what, uh, actually, he hates when people call him Dr. Christopher Ryan. Uh, he refers to himself as Dr. Fur to make fun of <laughs> anyone who calls him Dr. Christopher Ryan. But anyway, uh, what I like about his idea of concern clutter is the online world, 
social media in particular, has enabled us to be concerned, at least theoretically, surface concern about everything. And thus, we must express our outrage about some submarine that went to go visit the Titanic. And we all must have a point of view or an opinion about that. And oh, what did RFK Jr. say? What is my opinion on that? What do you think about the new Democratic presidential candidate, uh, Gavin Newsom? Is he going to run? And you're like... But I don't I don't know. And I don't really care. Oh, you don't have an opinion about that. Right. And what's happening is we feel as though we're supposed to be concerned about everything. In fact, we even we dress it up with with niceties like oh, he's well informed. Yeah. But what are you actually informed about? You might have a lot of information, but how useful is that? I saw this meme recently. It was actually a guy speaking and they turned it into like a a TikTok video. And he said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put that tomato in a fruit salad. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's so good. You know, it's interesting because when when I think about this question, I don't feel oh man, we just got owned. We just got insulted. I don't feel like there's anything to defend us ourselves against. But I, I do feel like, you know, this, this is why people don't give themselves permission to create. I encounter it every day. When I go into these high schools and I go into these colleges, when I talk with adults, everybody out there has something that they want to create that they wish they had the courage to create. I want to write a book. I want to compose a song. I want to, I want to learn how to make these. I, so many people have things that they want to do that's creative to them. And people are scared. And they're scared because they've bought into this idea that they need to be worthy. And what the heck does that even mean? Who determines worthiness? Now, you might want to play it safe and give the answer that you mistakenly think is going to work by saying, well, it's, it's having a credential. It's, it's being a professional. Well, I just sat in a room last week where all the people there were united amongst the common struggle. And you know what the whole conversation was about? The conversation was about bad therapists and how getting help with the struggle requires making sure how to identify bad therapists. And all of the therapists that were being discussed were people with the proper credentials, people with the expertise. So even within the field of people that you might not even call pseudo counselors, right? People who jump through the hoops and did the work that makes you respect that person as a real doctor, a real counselor, or whatever it may be. Even amongst them, there are people who once were clients that are talking smack about them going, they're not helpful at all. Their technique is all flawed. When it comes down to it, all you can ever do as a human being is show up truthfully as you are Be honest about what you believe, what you feel. Give people the permission to reject it, to question it, to challenge it and say, hey, it may not work for you, but here's my story. Here's my experience. Here are my thoughts. Here's what worked for me. And what I notice is that people that are out there creating things, they have managed to overcome that fear of being unworthy. And they've given themselves permission to put themselves out there in spite of the fact that they know they don't know everything. And so for me, I would say, look, it's for other people to play the label label game and decide if we're counselors, pseudo counselors, or something else. It's the same with the writing. I actually write 
but I don't occupy myself with the question of, am I a writer? That's, that's a label game for other people to play. All I care about is showing up and actually writing down my thoughts. And if the world wants to crown me as a writer, okay, good for them if that makes them feel better. If the world wants to withhold that label from me and say, TK is not a writer, as long as I have the freedom to actually write, I'm good, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I don't see myself as any kind of counselor, whether it's pseudo or real, but have at it whatever label you want. What matters to me is that we all as human beings give ourselves the permission to show up as we are and say, hey, if anybody finds this helpful, great. And if not, I'm not mad at you. And I hope you can find something somewhere else that's helpful to you, right? So who am I to show up and create the things that I want to create? The same person that you are when you questioned my right to do this. We're both the same. We're just expressing how we feel, how we think about things. David. Thank you for your concern. <laughs> Question here from Facebook. Lise asks, physical gifts give me anxiety and some people just refuse to understand and insist on giving me presents. Do I just refuse their gifts? Trash their gifts once their back is turned? Ugh, I dread my birthday and festive seasons. Mm. I too dread my birthday, which is today, by the way, or the day we're recording this. And uh, no one got me a birthday gift. And thank God, <laughs> because I've set an expectation of front. everyone who knows me knows that if you want to get me a gift, the only thing you could do is rate our podcast on Apple or Spotify. It's the best gift that you can give me. But besides that, I don't need an obligatory gift. In fact, if you were to hand me something, you might be cluttering my life. Even if it's something you think I might find value in, the truth is I have everything I need. And there are a million other ways to show up for me other than a physical representation of it. Now, that said, I'm not against physical gifts. I'm not anti-gift. I just don't like receiving them personally. Yeah. And there are a bunch of other ways that people give me gifts. They will reach out and they'll say hello or they'll they'll spend time with me. Yeah. Or sometimes it's a great gift to leave me alone. For the longest time, I used to, on my birthday, when I worked in the corporate world, and I was an extrovert all the time, forced into extroversion. I took my birthday off and I would just spend it alone. Leave me alone, please, for one day. That's the best gift that you can give me because here's the truth. A gift becomes a curse when it is attached to an obligation. If it's your birthday or if it's Christmas or Valentine's Day or Sweetest Day or Flag Day, I can honor you. I can celebrate you. I can show you I care with a gift or without a gift. Mm. But if I'm forced to give you a gift, if you expect me to give you a gift, Mm. guess what happens? Now I feel like that gift is a curse. I have to go out and buy something for you. Not, oh, I get to show my love. I get to celebrate you. I get to contribute beyond myself in a meaningful way. It's, uh, I guess I have to do this to show them that I care. Is that really caring? Yeah. And then on the other end, refusing a gift is so much more loving than holding on to resentment towards the person who gave you that gift. And if someone is insisting on taking something and putting it in your space, 
demanding that you accept it because they have labeled it a gift. Imagine that, right? I just walk into your house and I throw a guitar on your, on your floor. You're like, what's this? Gift. The fact that I labeled it with that word means, oh, you now have to just let it be there. That's an insane concept, but that's how we act. As long as I put a label on it that says gift, even if you think it's junk, you owe it to me in our relationship that you have to keep it. That's nonsense. And it's best to protect people from the hatred, the bitterness and resentment that you're going to feel towards them if you really feel that upset about the gifts that they're giving you. And one of the, 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 wor- the wordings of this question was quite in- interesting because it said, they refuse to understand. They insist on giving it to me. Well, you can also refuse to accept the gift. You can insist on them doing something else with it. And the conversation never has to start that way because there are some people that are well-meaning who will listen and you can give everybody one, two, three opportunities to hear the nice version. But if someone is taking it to the point where they're like, not suffering from an information problem. They know how you feel. It's been communicated and they're just going to disregard it. Well, you totally have the right to be firm and say, hey, look, I love you and we're cool, but I'm not taking that. Stop it. Stop doing it. You have that right. Yes. And you can do so in a way that is stern. In fact, during the lightning round, I want to talk to you a bit more about this because what happens sometimes, I know that I can be relatively stern or to the point, matter of fact, you might call it, right? And uh, that can come off to some people as cold or abrasive to other people, especially with TK. He'll call me sometimes and he'll just be like, I I, I said, hey, I got an urgent thing. Can you call me back real quick? And he'll call me and say, all right, give me the bottom line first and you can give me the explanation (laughs) later. But that's because there's a level of trust that is built up there. You're not going to say that to a random person on the street. You haven't established that level of trust. And so, Lise, if you've developed a level of trust with these people, then you can communicate with them in a way that shows them what your feelings actually are. And it's not that you dislike them or you dislike their gift. It says something about you that you just simply don't want the pressure of accepting more gifts and then having the responsibility to do something with that gift in the not too distant future. By the way, this reminds me of a story when... uh me and my brother were, were leaving home and we're getting ready to go to this party. And my mom tells me as I'm getting ready to walk out of the door, no drinking, don't drink. Now, it just so happened to be the case that I didn't drink. And so I said to my mom, I don't drink. And she had something to say back. She's like, well, don't drink tonight. And I'm like, well, I don't drink ever. So why would I drink tonight? And at that point, my brother seeing what's going on says, just say, okay. And I said, okay, mom. And we left. Mm. Sometimes you can make everyone's life easier by not treating everything as if it has to be debated and just saying, okay, and moving on. And there are cases where it just might be simpler Mm -hmm. if you are dealing with a situation or a person where you don't have time to verbalize how you really feel. Uh, You're not in a situation where you think fast enough to like say something about it. Just say, thanks, and then you can figure out what the best thing to do with it is. And just whatever is simpler for you. Everything doesn't have to be a fight. Let's head on over to Twitter. Michael has a question for us. Why do so many people think the simple life can't be exciting or thrilling? I think that's the misconception that loses most people. I mean, it's not exciting or thrilling. 
Yeah, you think so? <laughs> I think so. I want to hear you. I no, hear I um, it's 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 fascinating because I tend to avoid excitement for mm. the sake of excitement. Yeah, uh, I follow sort of the Buddhist wisdom on this. Quite often, when something is a chase, mm. it is something I can become addicted to, and it causes chaos in my life. But I'll say this. I value peace more than I value thrills. However, a simple life can actually make way for thrills and excitement and being delighted by something. If you're the type of person who wants to do ultra marathons, to me, that seems like chaos. But having a simpler life allows you to do an ultra marathon, right? Makes the space, the time to commit yourself to something like that. Or maybe you're someone who flies around one of those squirrel suits. You know what I'm talking about? They're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're still alive after doing that, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Almost everyone who, who rides around in those things, eventually that's the way that they die. That's how dangerous that is. That would radically disturb my peace. But having a simple life might make room for a thrilling activity like that. Yeah. I, I jokingly talk about the, you know, for me, a simple life is, I think for a lot of people, if you were to like strap a GoPro to me and follow me around for 24 hours a day, you'd say, you'd be impressed by the level of discipline that I have. Now, I don't think of it as discipline because I don't force myself to do these things. And I think quite often we talk about discipline, it's just like, oh, you should force yourself to do this or you should force yourself to not do this, right? Yeah. But I do things that are really compelling to me and they might be really boring to someone else. And yeah. the person who looks at it and says, oh, that's really boring, I would have to have a lot of discipline to do it. I would say, don't do it then. If you need discipline to force yourself to live a life like my life, where I sit down and I write every morning, or I go on long hikes in nature almost every day, or I sit in an ice bath or whatever it, it requires. If, that, if it requires dis discipline for you, then you're probably not going to be able to force yourself to do it long term. Mm. But if there's something that's truly compelling, guess what? The simple life is an untangled life. And you're untangling yourself from these commitments and these disciplines and these rituals that have yeah. become clutter for you. By the way, I love that distinction you make between being bored and being boring. And sometimes when we're trying to put together our own concept of an exciting life, we run the risk of placing too much attention on what other people think is exciting when they look at our lives. And I think the question that everyone has to ask themselves is, am I willing to look boring to others in order to live out my own concept of what it means to be exciting? Because sometimes living your ideal of the adventurous life means you put yourself in a situation where other people may look at you and like, man, what is he doing with his Saturday night? What a boring life. All, all that I need is that I'm happy with it, right? Another distinction I make is between um, excitement and entertainment. You know, and, and yes. uh, excitement is about adventure, uh, creative risk, mystery, uncertainty, exploration, discovery, and excitement is intrinsic to the human experience when we engage the world. But entertainment is when we simulate or try to simulate ex experiences of excitement by creating something for other people to consume. Now, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, but it's very dangerous to believe that excitement couldn't exist without entertainment. And we live in a generation where we have so many entertainment, so many forms of amusement. I encourage everyone to read Amusing Ourselves to Death because that's exactly what we're doing. And we've sort of 
become detached from the beauty of the process of creating our own excitement. And that's one of the values of things like taking a walk, learning how to meditate, getting out in nature. It's not about saying all of those other trappings are evil and bad. It's about saying to be fully human is to be someone who knows how to manufacture my own inspiration, my own excitement. And then I can re-engage entertainments, but it's me who's bringing the life to the party, not the other way around. Oh, that's so good. Because what you're doing is you're, you're making a distinction between consumption and creation. Mm. Yeah. To consume, there's nothing wrong with consuming. We all need some stuff. We all need some entertainment. Yeah. We all consume. Yeah. But when the scales tip too far to the consumption side, we cease to create. And it is that creating and the balance of consumption and creating that makes us feel alive. However, there's also a third option we rarely talk about. We can get off that teeter-totter sometimes. And we can just be still. We can be in silence. It's Pascal who said that most of life's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in an empty room. If you can't be alone with yourself, bored, how can you possibly be yourself in the most exciting situations? Alabama, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put these minimal maxims in the show notes over at TheMinimalists.com so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Today's question is from Alicia. My mom wants to pass down some family heirlooms to me, but I'm not interested in keeping any of them. How do I tell her I don't want her stuff without hurting her feelings? Let's get 60 seconds on the clock for TK Coleman. What do you got for us, TK? All right. Facts don't care about your feelings, but friends do. Yes, it's true that a fact doesn't care about your emotional response to it. But you know what else has that quality? A baseball. A baseball doesn't care about your feelings, but that doesn't mean I need to throw it in your face. I can toss it in your direction gently, right? I can throw it your way in a way that makes it feasible for you to catch. I can wrap a little bow around it and hand it to you as a gift, right? The thing doesn't come with a set of instructions for how I need to deliver it to you. Delivery counts even when something is hard, even when something has the potential to hurt how you give it to the other person really does matter. And so if you have someone in your life that you want to say no to and you really care about how they receive it, there's a way to give it to them that's more gentle than just saying, get the heck out of my face. I don't want that. When I worked at the restaurant, my manager told me, never end an interaction with the customer with the word no. If they say, do you have any barbecue sauce and we don't have any, say no, but then also add, but we do have ranch, we do have chipotle, That way you give them options. And if they say no to the options, that's on them. But if they say yes, you've created a win. Either way, you give people possibility. Can I ask you a question about that? Because sometimes people think that I come off as cold or abrasive. We talked about this a little bit on the private podcast earlier, but I wanted to save it for this lightning round because I knew we'd be tackling this TikTok question here. And I'm rather matter of fact sometimes. I'm down the business, get to the bottom line. In fact, I was having a difficult conversation with my wife yesterday 
And she couched it and I've got some disturbing news. And I'm like, hey, I know you have some preamble here, but can you please get to the bottom line? (laughs) And then if we need to unpack it together, we can. Now, I'm more tender with her than I am with most people. Yeah. But I know that sometimes I can come off as cold. And for some people, they might even perceive that as rude. But to me, it feels intrinsically, it feels like I'm being caring. How do you form a detente with that? Because we've worked together long enough yeah. now that you, I think it was probably, it was really jarring to you at first. Yeah. But in a way, you've, you've come to respect and maybe even appreciate it. Well, you know what's funny is we're, we're susceptible to misunderstanding in completely opposite ways. Because I tend to care very deeply about getting people to open their hearts to the ideas, I put a lot of work in how I say it. And I have sometimes been misunderstood as afraid of people when I'm really not, scared of potential misunderstanding when I'm really not, and I just care about the message getting across, right? And so anytime I've given people advice about how to say no without hurting someone else's feelings, I always get negative feedback from people that are really proud of their ability to just say no without giving a damn about how the other person feels. No, no was a complete sentence, brother. You can just say no. And, And I agree. But when it comes to questions like this, it reminds me of something more fundamental, which is what's the goal? When you're communicating with someone, what's the goal? There are really situations where the goal is to do nothing more than let the other person know you're not having it. And when you're in a situation like that, just make it clear and firm that the answer is no. But if you're saying something like, this person really matters to me, I know that if I say it in this way, I might crush them. Even though I have the right to still say it in that way, it matters to me that I give myself the opportunity to generate a different response. That matters to me. And so I'm going to communicate in the way that reflects the goal that I want to achieve. So if I genuinely want someone to feel good about something, I'm going to say it in a way that's likely to produce that result. But it doesn't always matter that they feel good. And sometimes I just give it to them straight. It depends on the context. Does that make sense? It does. And when I meet new people, like if someone yeah. comes up and says hi to me at a grocery store, oh, one of the minimalists, or if I'm just meeting a cashier and they have no idea who I am, yep. I am flamboyantly myself. I'm over the top. I, I will give you hugs. And because I also, I appreciate, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like it's my duty or my responsibility to do it, but I feel as though, hey, if we're going to be here right now, why am I going to just slog through the moment? And I think sometimes when I come off as cold or abrasive, it's because I'm trying to do something else in the moment. Yeah. And this is just going to get me back to actually being in the moment. And that's why I come off as, as, well, um, over the top sometimes in a friendly, kind, sometimes even charismatic way where it's just like, I'll thank the cashier yeah. for working. And they look at me like, oh my God, I can't believe you're treating me like a human being. And it's like, well, how else should I treat you, right? Now, I will say sometimes there are things that are difficult that we have to talk about, like this question and the fa- family heirlooms, being honest and even being stern with your boundary is not the same thing as trying to offend someone. Mm. And I think we want to be clear about that. Even if you are offended by something I said, I never tried to offend you. Professor Sean and I did a video recently on the How to Write Better YouTube channel Mm. about trigger warnings. And the data now shows that trigger warnings don't work, but that's not the reason I don't use trigger warnings Mm. on this podcast or 
in my writing, especially in my writing. And here's the reason I don't use trigger warnings, because I respect you as an adult. And I'm not going to try to offend you. I'm not going to try to make you upset. I'm not going to try to insert something that you can't deal with. But I also respect you as an adult. If you're reading my writing, you're an adult and you're mature enough to deal with a sensitive subject. Even if we're talking about something really sensitive, right, that might really touch on something in your life, I respect you enough to not downgrade it with a trigger warning. Now, one other thing I'll add, though, because I I think there are kind of like two extremes when it comes to uh, other people being offended. One extreme is, you know, everybody needs to walk on eggshells about it and everybody needs to completely accommodate the offended party. And whatever it is you say, you need to be willing to adjust it if someone is offended by it. And then there's this other extreme, which is like, hey, my only obligation is to be real and you have to handle your own offense. And I think there's a middle ground, too, that says, hey, We're not always obligated to accommodate an offended party, but it's also okay to care if someone is offended. I don't care about every single possible conceivable offense that there is, but sometimes when people are offended by something, I care and that's okay too. And it's okay to use that as an opportunity to learn something and to make some adjustments and be like, hey, you know what? I think you're the baddest dude in the room. I think you can go further than anybody that I've ever met. And I care very deeply that I communicated that message to you in a way that offended you because I want you to see how awesome you are. Yes. And, and this doesn't even take me in the direction I want to go with you. Right. So I apologize about that. Here's, let, let me try to say that again in a way that's more reflective of how I really feel. I think sometimes that's important. Yes. Yeah. And it is okay to accommodate someone in, some, in those yeah. scenarios without coddling them. You yeah. can care about someone without needing to infantilize them because that is even more offensive. You're adding offense on top of offense, right? And now I'm offended, but now I'm even more offended because you're treating me like a freaking baby. And speaking of the eggshells, give me 60 seconds, Professor Sean. (laughs) I got something pithy for you. A light foot cracks the same number of eggshells. So quite often what happens is, oh, I'm afraid of offending you. So I'm going to walk lightly as I'm walking on eggshells. Well, guess what happens? I've offended you, but I've also offended my own sensibilities. I've disrespected or disregarded the way that I want to approach the world because I'm terrified that I might offend you. And if I don't offend you, I might offend Alabama, or I might offend Jordan, or I might offend Sean, or I might offend Danny with this. And so now I'm walking over here and I'm cracking an eggshell. I'm cracking an eggshell. Now, it doesn't mean I go around trying to stomp on the eggs, trying Mm. to offend people. But if you are walking on eggshells, it doesn't matter how light you walk, someone is still going to get offended. Man. What, what did I, I had 90 seconds and he was like 45. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can can I just have a quick, uh, Um, round on this. Let's do it. So I I think it's important to make a distinction between walking lightly based on fear and walking lightly based on love, right? So using me as an example, let's say I'm talking to my wife and her feelings and her emotional response to what I'm saying is important to me. I can walk lightly by being like, oh, I don't want to make her mad. Happy wife, happy life. If she gets annoyed, it's going to ruin my day. I'm going to be in the doghouse. Nothing I do from that state of consciousness is going to win. 
she will smell that fear a mile away. And even if she did agree with me, something will demand that she disagrees with me, right? Because my vibration just has a kick me sign on my back. Kick me, I'm afraid. On the other hand, if I come at it from a, with the vibration of, man, I love her. This is my wife, man, right? I love her and I, and, and, and I want her to get the thing that she really wants out of this situation. And so I'm not gonna talk to her like she's my enemy. Yeah. I'm, and, and I'm not afraid of her because you can't really, like the fear compromises your love, right? If I'm afraid of her, I can't love her as deeply as I need to. So I'm gonna say this thing to her in a way that I think will land best, best on what I think I know about her. And so here I'm walking lightly and I'm not cracking eggshells because I'm not wearing fear on my feet. Yeah. You know? That's beautiful. We're going to check in with the Patreon a live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. Last week, we had an episode we talked about un, or we talked about necessary endings, right? And uh, evolutions, recalibrations, and sometimes something just comes to an end. When I finished writing a book, I, our last book, Love People Use Things, I got to the end. I didn't keep doing it. I finished the book and then it was done. Or when you read a book, you get to the end and then it's done. Even if you yeah. wish there was more, sometimes you just end and it ends. My wife has a podcast. It's called How to Love. And uh, this weekend we're recording the 60th and final episode wow. of How to Love. And what's fascinating about that is her and I recorded episode 57. And it's been this amazing exploration. We started the podcast. We thought we were going to do five or six episodes. The initial plan was to do five. Maybe we'll do six. And I wanted it as an archive for her because it was during a time in my life when I was at this health nadir. We talked about this a little bit on the gut health episode. And I thought I might be dying. And longtime listeners know about this, so I won't beat you over the head with it. But it was a really trying time in my life, a lot of uncertainty in my life. And I said, I want to give this gift to Bex. How about her and I have some really deep, intimate conversations about love, about relationships, about sex, about parenting, about wellness. And we just have these conversations. And even if I'm gone, she'll have something to go back to if she chooses. Mm. We found we were enjoying it so much. We were exploring love because really, how to love is a misnomer. There is no how to. There's not a prescription. It's really about understanding what love is. And most of us, we misunderstand love. I know for most of my life, probably 30-something years of my life, I misunderstood what love was. I thought attachment was love. I thought acts of service were love. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not what love is. And as we explored love, I got to better understand love through this podcast, How to Love. And when we got to episode 59, I realized that we were beginning to say some of the same things over and over. And I talked to Sean about it and I'm like, I felt like maybe this is coming to some sort of necessary ending here. Mm. And the very next day, I hadn't even talked to Bex yet. She's like, hey, what do you think if we do the next episode as our last episode? Mm. I said, let's talk about that. And it turns out that we were both feeling the same way. The energy was the same. Yeah, We got to the end of it. And that's where I feel like we are with how to love. It's not that it's over. It's just we've gotten to the end of it. We've said everything that we want to say about this subject, about these subjects together. 
And so there's a public version you can check out for free, howtolove.show or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's audio only. Or if you want the juicy stuff, we did a Patreon version as well. For 10 bucks, you can go download all 60 of those episodes if you'd like. It's uh, howtolove.show. You'll find the, the Patreon over there as well. Yeah. Quick programming note real quick. The Minimalist Podcast is looking for more listener insights and minimalist tips from our audience. Do you have a comment, unique perspective, or helpful tip for our show? We feature them on every show. If you do, please email a voice recording to podcast at minimalists.com so we can feature your voice on a future episode. In the voice recording, simply state your name and location, followed by your comment. Try to keep them under two minutes because brevity is the soul of wit. Alabama, let's check in. We have a leftover question from our Patreon live stream. We actually we're upgrading the live stream. As of this recording, our first one will be tomorrow. It'll already be in the past by the time you hear this. We're calling them Friday afternoon minimalist Zooms. We're going to do it at least once a month. We'll probably sneak in a few extras throughout the month as well. Who knows? We might even have a Friday afternoon Zoom on a Saturday evening or something like that. We'll, we'll throw a few extras in there for you as well, just to do these nice little Zoom calls with our Patreon subscribers. However, if you're an introvert, you just want to turn your camera off and, and be the voyeur or the fly on the wall with our conversations, you can do that as well. You can join us the first Friday of every month, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. Alabama, you had a leftover question from our last Patreon live stream. Yeah, this one comes from Andrew. Is the film Less Is Now going to be on YouTube? As a minimalist, I try to have no streaming services and would love to see this on YouTube too. Bravo. Yeah, the we are, I'm rather selective about the streaming services I sign up for because now at this point, it seems like everyone has a streaming service. And I like to, I prefer personally, I'm not prescribing this to you, but I really prefer to send that money directly to creators. So I tend to support a lot of podcasts, whether it's on Patreon or other platforms or YouTube, and they have their little sign-up box or whatever. I like going directly to a creator and supporting their work as opposed to, oh, I guess I gotta get Paramount Plus and Peacock and all of these other things. If you find value in those things, great. Um, I will say this, with Less Is Now, which is our second documentary, Emmy-nominated, probably because it features T.K. Coleman. <laughs> and um, it, we filmed that and released it. Uh, actually, it was released 2021, so just a couple of years ago. And uh, it is a Netflix original, which means they funded the whole project. So they own the project as a result. So it will not be coming up on... YouTube or any other streaming platform anytime soon. It's one of the lessons that I've learned over time. I prefer to own our IP. I'm really glad that Minimalism, our first documentary is out there and millions more people are, they have a chance to see it commercial free. But if you have Netflix, you can check out our second documentary or you can sign up for a week. And and always, if you don't like Netflix, you could you can get off of uh, whatever streaming platform you want whenever you want. By the way, a uh, big scandalous minimalist rumor. Uh, once I appeared in the documentary before they released it, Ryan and Josh had this heart to heart. They were like, man, we don't like any of TK's appearances, anything that he's saying. We should just go ahead and edit this out. And the producers were like, I agree. But then everybody looked at each other and they were like, yeah, but we need to get that Emmy nomination. So <laughs> that's really the only reason I made the cut. Oh they need goodness. to put an asterisk by that nomination. <laughs> 
We'll answer some more questions here on the private podcast. But first, Malabama, what else you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hi, my name's Kay. I'm calling from the United Kingdom. Uh, my minimalist insight is this. If you have some books which you've worn for a few years yet haven't read, then choose one at a time and read the first few pages. Then if you feel after that that you want to commit the time that it would take to read it entirely, then keep it. But if you don't want to commit that time to the book, then let it go. Um, if you do this with each book that's been sitting there unread, you you know by the end of it you will find that you're left with just your true favourites. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm currently doing, and I'm finding it helpful, hard but helpful. So yeah, I hope this um, hope this helps some other people as well. Welcome back, y'all, I'm Alabama. Let's check back in. We got one more saved question from our former. Patreon live stream. Cannot wait to have these Zoom calls face-to-face with y'all the first Friday of every month. Check the Patreon post that we put up there, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. It's for anyone who subscribes to the video version of the private podcast. Try it out. Oh, I cannot wait to talk to you. You're going to have a Zoom call. Ryan's going to be there as well. So have a Zoom call with The Minimalist. Alabama will be there. Bring the rest of our team in there as well. We'll have some great conversations. Alabama, you got any more questions for us? Yeah, this was actually a really great comment from Louise. She said, last night, I got a clear picture of the difference between just in case and just for when. My husband was up in the mountains with friends and had no cell phone service. They got stuck and were out all night. After very little sleep, calling 911 and checking local hospitals, it was clear to me we need a satellite phone. We are moving to the mountains and it's a safety issue just for when. Wow. So buying a satellite phone just for when you need it, which is going to be different from a satellite phone just for when I might need it because I am rarely anywhere where I would need a satellite phone. I have other just for when I usually I reserve just for when for the sort of bulk purchase consumer or consumable yeah. goods. But there are just for when items that I actually look at it as a emergency item. You hope that you're never, ever going to have to use it. An emergency item is not a just for when item. It is a just in case item that you just pray you'll never have to use jumper cables or a plunger or whatever it might be. However, I know Professor Sean has some insights on the uh, use of a satellite phone. Yeah, um, Apple added a satellite phone hardware to the latest iPhones and Apple Watches. Um, I think a actual satellite phone is probably a lot cheaper. And I don't think anyone should just go rush to upgrade their phone because it has a satellite phone. But if you're going to upgrade your phone and you're you have need of a satellite phone. It's something to keep in mind. You don't need the duplicate. Like, I wouldn't have known that. Like, let's say my iPhone broke today and I went to go buy a new one tomorrow. I wouldn't know it had the satellite phone capability built into it. Right. And so I might, if I really need a satellite phone, I might go out and buy a a second thing. So that's an important observation. Yeah. I, I think another element of, actually, let me just ask you this. When it comes to just in case, where would you place something like insurance, health insurance, car insurance? Yeah, those are emergency items for me. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great perspective. They're not items necessarily, but they're emergency expenses. I have it 
just in case there's an emergency. I don't plan on getting into a car accident when I drive down here, down the terrifying 101 from Ojai. <laughs> but if I do get into it, hopefully I'm going to be covered by that. And the same is true for any other kind of insurance. That's why I don't do whole life insurance because insurance is not an investment. Oh, this is an interesting metaphor. Think about this. Quite often we buy something and hold on to it just in case oh, but I spent so much money on it. I might as well hold on to it because it might be worth something someday. Or I still think it's, I remember I had these old BlackBerry phones because when I was in the corporate world, I had a bunch of Blackberries sitting in a drawer. They're literally worth nothing now. For a while, I held on to them because I knew they weren't worth what they were once worth. But yeah, they're probably worth something. I'm sure I could sell them someday. But they become a burden to me today and tomorrow until I let go of it. Hmm. Well I, yeah. I got some talk aboutables for you. The first one is about our friend Rachel Cruz. So you've heard me say before, more stuff won't make you more complete. We often purchase things because I feel that void. I feel empty. I feel incomplete. And instead of trying to figure out where does that come from? And is that even a bad thing? Maybe it's not incomplete. Maybe there's just a bunch of open space. And how beautiful is that reframing of the void? But buying more things won't make you more complete. If you show up complete, your things can amplify your experience of life. It can enhance your life. But I love this thing that our friend Rachel Cruz says, if nobody sees this purchase, do I still want it? I think about all the things that I bought in my corporate days of yesteryear, the luxury cars. At one point, I was looking at a boat, uh, expensive purses or fancy jewelry or a shiny new watch. I had several really nice watches and really nice suits and really nice ties. But if no one was going to see these items that I'm purchasing, would I still want to buy them? Mm. And I live my life now in a way that I buy the things that I enjoy. If you come to my house, I have some nice furniture. I really enjoy my clothes, whether or not you enjoy them. I enjoy my furniture, whether or not you get value from them because they're valuable to me. I enjoy these things. My car is my car. I don't have it to impress anyone. But also, if you're impressed by it, Great. If you're not, that's great too. I didn't buy it for you. I bought it for me. And for the longest time, I was buying things not for me, but to impress other people. I wanted them to think a particular way about me. So I'd go into debt to buy a thing mm. to impress someone so they felt a way about me. Well, if you feel a way about me because of my car, or because of my clothes, you don't, you don't feel a way about me. You're not impressed by me. You're impressed by the things I was able to acquire, which isn't me at all. Yeah. Now, if you get a yes to that question, you might have something really valuable, right? I'm willing to do this if no one sees it and gives me credit for it. I'm willing to buy this if no one knows that I bought it. Man, that might be as close to valuable as you can get, right? Yeah. This, this really is me following my highest excitement. Here are two questions I'd add to that question to help people walk through a process of decision making. The first question is, if no one sees this purchase, will I still buy it? 
suppose the answer to that question is no. Then you might want to ask, all right, what value does other people seeing me give to my life? And then the next question is, do I want to continue telling myself that story? Because there are some instances where I might give a no, but I want to keep telling that story. For instance, I might not buy any non-pajama clothing if I was the only one in the universe. I love walking around in pajamas. However, there are some places I'm not going to go in pajamas for no other reason than that other people will see me in my pajamas and there's a social interaction that I want that involves not talking about the pajamas that I'm wearing. Yeah. Right? And so that's an example of me saying no, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm cool with continuing that. But I, I think the question is great because it makes it explicit and gives you a chance to make a choice. And you can say yes to that choice or you can say, all right, let's end it here. Right. And I would also, I would just add to that by saying that, yes, you're not wearing your pajamas out in public or even here to the pot the podcast, but you're also the pants you're wearing. You didn't put them on saying, I'm going to impress people today with these pants or with the logo. I need the Louis Vuitton logo. I need the Gucci logo. I need the Polo Ralph Lauren logo. I need Tommy Hilfiger. I need Balenciaga. I need John Barbados, right? No, I don't need to show you who I am through a logo. I don't need to show you who I am through a brand name. I don't buy something in order to express myself. Me, I'm already complete. And therefore, the things that I have in my life, they're not going to make me more complete, but they can they can enhance my interactions with others. So yes, you're coming in here without pajama pants on. Yeah. Your clothes enhance your interaction, but you don't wear the clothes you're wearing right now to impress the people in this room or the people watching the podcast. Profound, but also a missed opportunity for a CompuSalt because you could have pointed at me and be like, I mean, look at this brother. He obviously didn't leave the house today trying to impress anybody. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's sure of himself. <laughs> oh, that's good. And I think that extends to technology as well. We often buy new pieces of technology to show who we are. It becomes a status symbol, right? So I love about Professor Sean. He has really been into different tablets over the years and he is a big time Apple fan. But just recently, he made a huge shift over to uh, fountain pens and Mm. writing in notebooks. And he's not buying, he's obsessed with these fountain pens now, but he's not buying them to impress me or other people. I'm impressed by it, but he didn't, that's not the reason that he did it. He did it because It's an art for him and it allows him, yeah, there's some sort of creative expression there, but he's not doing it for other people. Other people might get something from it, but it's not, um, it's not the reason that he's doing it. Is that fair, Sean? Yeah. I mean, I spend the most of my time writing with these things at my desk at home alone. No one's watching me write a novel or, or journal like I don't journal for other people. I journal for me. Enhances the journaling experience. Yeah. And by the mm. way, when I read one of your novels, I'm not like, oh, I could tell. He must have used a really <laughs> yeah, great totally. fountain pen. <laughs> you could have used a cheap gas station pen, right? Or I, I think it was Michelle Branch had an album called Hotel Paper. that She wrote the yes. whole album on hotel paper while she was on tour. And she like, we just get these little papers and cheap pens and yeah. write it there. And so it's not about the utensil. Just like it's not about the material possession, it's about 
what we create or what we do with those material possessions. I would also say that most of the time when I do show the pens off to people and I'm explaining what's so beautiful about this one or the the, the neat feature on this one, or what, most people just, their eyes gloss over. They don't care. And I know they don't, they don't care. I get the joy in explaining it. Yeah, that's right. And And so part of it has to do with you have become more educated about it through explaining it to other people. Mm. That happened to me when we first started teaching the writing class, even before you you joined me with the writing class, How to Write Better. Uh, I found that I my writing improved significantly those first three years I taught the writing class because I was stopping and breaking down my own recipe to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And that really took the lessons I was teaching, I was also able to take back and incorporate into my own writing because I was beginning to better understand the things that I was teaching. Mm. And I find that if you want to learn something, teach it. Mm-hmm. If I really wanted to learn yoga, I, I would make a commitment to become a yoga teacher, even if I'm not proficient at it right now. But that's how you often get proficient at something. And in fact, uh, Danny, the other day came to me and, and was talking about how... Um, you and I have big dad wisdom energy. <laughs> wow, I never heard that He's term so before. Right, he, he, I didn't think about it this way. I mean, I, I am a dad, so it makes sense. But, um, He's like, we just need to open up a hotline where people can call in and like, you know, especially like people in their 20s who are struggling with some sort of... And the reason I can, I have this wisdom is because we've talked about it so many times at this point. We've addressed so many questions that my answer at first is, I don't know. I need to think about that. We do these production notes for the podcast a week in advance because I all week I'm thinking about these questions we are getting ready to answer because most of the time... Mm. I don't really know. And I can talk about these things extemporaneously, but also if I ruminate on it for three, four, five, six, seven days Mm. beforehand, now all of a sudden new ideas are coming to me. And then I incorporate that back into my own life. Mm. And so this podcast is just as much for me as it is for the listener. You were talking about just in case earlier. And Sean, I got something I want to play here in a second. This is why just in case are the three most dangerous words in the English language. Hey, babe, should we get rid of this paint? Is that the paint from the baby nursery? And our baby's now 13. And we've moved and we no longer have a room with that color. But we should hang on to it. I mean, you never know. It just feels better to have it. (laughs) I love having it. Don't you love that new phone feeling? What are you going to do with your old phone? Keep it, obviously. Obviously. You never know when you're going to need an old phone. Or six. What if one day we need (gasps) that flip phone? You never know when you're going to need an old phone. We should keep them all forever. Just feels better to have it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a good box. Should we keep it? You have to keep a good box. Yeah, you never know. You never know when you're going to need a good box. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To put things in stuff. You got to put things in stuff and then stuff in the things. Yeah, I know our son quit lacrosse five years ago, but we can't get rid of this. Do you know how expensive it was? What if DVDs come back? Do you know how much I paid for this DVD player? It's ultra HD. It would cost me so much money to replace this bike if I ever wanted to train for a triathlon again, which I would never want to do, and it sounds terrible, but just in case. Just in case. Keeping it. Just in case. Honey, why do we have all of this stuff from the security system that we used at our old house? The company didn't want it back. Oh, yeah, because the technology is, like, super outdated. But we should totally keep it. Oh, 100%. We should keep it. I mean, security. It makes me feel safer just knowing we have it in a box on the shelf in our garage. Hey, do you know what this charger is for? Huh. No. 
But we should totally keep it. Yeah, I'll just keep it here with my boxes of other cords. <laughs> or you can put it with all these cords. You never know. One day you may need this little dingle dongle cable. <laughs> this is exactly why. <laughs> this is exactly why we came up with the just in case rule, the 2020 rule. Anything you're holding on to, just in case, you can let it go because you can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from wherever you are. The cool thing about this rule is you never have to use it. You never end up replacing all of these just in case items. The paint, the phone, the boxes, the sporting equipment, the DVDs, the bikes, the cords, the cables, the boxes filled with stuff. Stuff that we'll never ever use, but we're holding on to just in case. Because just in case is a story that we tell ourselves about the things we're holding on to. Mm. We invent a narrative that might transpire in some non existent hypothetical future, and it makes us keep the things that are going to burden us today and tomorrow. Yeah, just in case is like, hanging on to a lottery ticket for your whole life and never cashing it. Mm. It's like that day comes 30 years later and you leave this earth and you have this lottery ticket. You never cashed in on it to enjoy what the lottery ticket represents. That's what we do with Just In Case. We treat it like, we treat replacing the item later if we need it as if that's the expensive option and hanging on to things that we don't need as if that's the free option. When in reality, it's the other way around because by hanging on to things just in case, even though you don't want them, they compromise your creative energy. They compromise your inner freedom. They compromise your flexibility. They compromise your joy. And how is that costing you in your relationships, in your career, in your creative projects? It's spot on because the story I'm telling myself ends up becoming a burden as well. And if I want to change that burden, I need to change the story. If I'm telling myself a disempowering story, it's making me miserable. And it's making me hold on to a bunch of things that are just getting in the way. Speaking of videos, TK, would you like to see my favorite scene from The Minimalist's first documentary, Minimalism, which is now on YouTube, 100% advertisement free? Let's see it. How do you win? You win by the traditional monikers of success. You win by how many zeros are at the end of your paycheck. I remember I was sitting you know, in a Barnes and Nobles and I was deciding what major I would study and all I was doing was leafing through this book. It was a book that showed degree versus earning potential over time. And that's when I zeroed in on finance and accounting. My entire life became about uh, winning with a capital W. My entire life became about being the guy that would be respected. Had a series of vertical leaps through my 20s, which landed me to this place in 2008. I'm making a ridiculous six-figure salary. I've got a corner office. And on December 31st, 2007, my boss calls me into his office and he tells me that I'm getting a promotion. And this was it. This was the game changer. This was me being a junior partner in this firm. and. Everything that I had ever worked for um, was going to be handed to me right then and there. You know, in, in banking terms, I was minted. And, and I remember just hearing this man say that, and it was just a really bizarre kind of um, ethereal moment where I was like watching this happen. You know, it was almost 
And I walked out of his office and I, and I walked back into my own and, and I just closed the door behind me and I just started weeping because um, I realized that I was completely and utterly trapped and that I would never be able to walk away from that amount of money ever in my life. And any dream that I had of living a life of purpose and meaning and, and, and being an adventurer and somebody that would actually take risks and, and live a life that's deliberate and intentional, those were gone. When you see your life scripted out and you recognize that this is not, this is not anything I want, why am I doing this? This guy that's handing me this, I don't want to be him. I don't envy his life. You know, maybe this was never for me to begin with and maybe if I don't leave right now, I'm gonna be that dude for the rest of my life. And I just took the elevator down 28 stories and, and that was it. And ever since then I decided that this life was gonna be mine and it was gonna be wildly, flamboyantly my life, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's, uh, mm. man, it's so good. That's my friend AJ. He runs a company called Misfit. He calls himself, I think, I don't know if he uses this term, a, a capitalist socialist. Mm. It's a socialist company. And so like uh, 25% of all of their revenue automatically goes out to charitable mm. causes. Yeah. And they have their own charity sort of wing of the company. And uh, so he immediately knows that if they make $100, 25 of it is going to these charitable calls that he, that he has set up. We've worked up with them on several things in the past, but I've spoken at a conference he did three years in a row in Fargo, North Dakota. And there were just some, he's a New Yorker, obviously he's a New Yorker, but there was, it was some of the most meaningful experiences I've had. People from all over the world just came there. And you could tell that like, he walked away from something. Yeah. And that willingness to walk away, it's it's overwhelming, but it's incredibly freeing. Yeah, and it's it's not about walking away from the money. It's about walking away from the lies. The reason that he compromised himself wasn't because he chose to study finance and accounting. It could have been anything. Some people sell their soul for money, but you can sell your soul for friends. You can sell your soul for the convenience of never being criticized. You can sell your soul for the appearance of virtue. Anytime you deny the truth of who you are in order to enjoy the ease of playing some kind of societal role, you're selling your soul. And for him, it was about finance and accounting. For someone else, it might be about something else, but it's not about the possessions or the absence of them. It's about what's that relationship you have with that truth that lies at the core of who you are. Alabama, I know you had an emotional reaction to this when you saw it. Yeah, every time I see it, I, I'm, I'm on team. I've watched this documentary so many times. And I have to tell you, I, it still grabs me by the boo-boo. Like, mm. This is one of, if not my favorite scene from it, because it, it, it brings me back to the present so quickly. And the thing about this documentary that was so impactful for me is that it was the first time I didn't watch a documentary to learn something, but to discover something. This was the first time I saw a documentary as a way to change people's lives and not just teach them about something that would otherwise be boring in a textbook or show it in a different medium. This, this really changed everything for me. And by the sounds of it, a lot of people. And I just want to 
thank you for doing that. I don't think I've ever directly told you that, but Mm. the documentary changed my idea of what a documentary could be and what it could do for people and their lives. Mm. And in the same way, I recall being a high schooler writing essays and going, God, I love this. Too bad there's no way to really do this for fun. And then I found your blog and I went, thank God someone disproved me. Thank you. I love that idea of doing it for fun. You know, I we did an episode last week and it was four hours long for episode 400 and Ryan was here and I hated that episode. Really? I'll tell you why I hated tell it me. though. Because I thought it was a great conversation, but not a great show. Mm. And I make that distinction all the time. I'm heavily considering our audience. When people, and this has been from the beginning, from when they show up to the blog, I want them to have a particular experience. Mm. The word you used yesterday when we were talking about it, TK, is entertain, and you corrected yourself, and you're like, I, I know you wouldn't use that word. I'm okay with that word. I don't mind entertaining people, but I want to delight people. Hmm. That's Mm. always what I want to happen with our experience. Now, if they're informed, wonderful. Not my intention. If they're helped, wonderful. Not my intention either. But if they're delighted, oh, that delights me. And so I want to create a delightful experience with this podcast, with our films, and The reason I don't just want to inform people is a calculus textbook is really informing. It's informative. No one goes to the beach with a calculus textbook. (laughs) They go to the beach with a book that delights them. And if that book also happens to help them or inform them or show them something about the world they didn't originally see, that's wonderful. Yeah. But it starts with delighting them. And so I thought that was a necessary and worthwhile conversation for us to have last week. And Ryan will keep coming back. We'll keep having these conversations. But I felt like we weren't doing what I would typically do to delight the audience. Yeah. By the way, completely different subject, but Professor Sean sent me a text message the other day and he was in a state of total ecstasy and I believe it was him at the beach with a book on formal logic. I was at the pool, but yeah, it was basically a logic textbook. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody takes a calculus Which textbook really to the beach. It's really similar to a calculus textbook. <laughs> Except for I, Professor Sean. I still stand by it. I've never seen anyone with a calculus textbook at the beach. <laughs> to each their own. If I did, I would bully them. <laughs> All right. Um, well, let, let me know if you hated last episode in the comments. <laughs> or okay. if you loved it. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, or were you delighted by it, perhaps? Yes. Yeah. We've got a sucky ad for you. It's our sucky ad segment where we talk about advertisements and why they suck. This one isn't actually an ad. TK, if you love advertising, you love lying, says Jerry Seinfeld in this comedic and honest take on advertisements. This is from the Clio Awards. I love advertising because I love lying. In advertising, everything is the way you wish it was. I don't care that it won't be like that when I actually get the product being advertised because in between seeing the commercial and owning the thing, I'm happy. (laughs) And that's all I want. 
<laughs> Tell me how great the thing is going to be. I love it. I don't need to be happy all the time. I just want to enjoy the commercial. I want to get the thing. We know the product is going to stink. We know that. Because we live in the world and we know that everything stinks. We all believe, hey, maybe this one won't stink. We are a hopeful species. Stupid, but hopeful. But we're happy in that moment between the commercial and the purchase. And I think spending your life trying to dupe innocent people out of hard-won earnings to buy useless, low-quality, misrepresented items and services is an excellent use of your energy. Because a brief moment of happiness is pretty good. I also think that just focusing on making money and buying stupid things is a good way of life. I believe materialism gets a bad rap. It's not about the amount of money. Nothing's better than a Bic pen, a, a VW Beetle, or a pair of regular Levi's. If your things don't make you happy, you're not getting the right things. <laughs> This will all be in my new book, Soulful Materialism, which is in the planning stages at this moment. I have always wanted a Clio. I don't know much about it, but I know it's a good award because in 1991, they screwed up this whole presentation and there were a bunch of awards left over, and all of these ad people here climbed up onto the stage and tried to grab them. So to me, that says this means something. <laughs> that really happened, and it's my all-time favorite award show occurrence because it was so honest. People just said, I want a damn Cleo, and they went for it. And that is why I am happy right now. I got this. I didn't really win it, but I got it. And tomorrow, I, I don't know where this is gonna be. It'll be somewhere. Eventually I'll be dead. Someone will just take it or sell it or throw it out. That's fine, I'm happy now. <laughs> the same way those executives were in 1991 when they ran onto this stage and grabbed trophies that weren't theirs. <laughs> but it trumped up their phony careers and meaningless lives. So thank you all for this great honor for, and for all your great work. It, I hope it makes you happy as you have made me happy for this five minutes of my life, which will last until I get to the edge of this stage and it <laughs> hits me that this was all a bunch of nonsense. Thank you and have a great evening. Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's great. So Gosh. the Clio Awards are the awards for advertising. Mm. I remember when Ryan and I got nominated for an Emmy, which is also a nonsense award, right? They're all, all awards for art are nonsense to me. And there was a moment where they played the best ads of the year and they were then giving out a daytime Emmy for the best advertisements. And it is true. There are some advertisers who make art, mm. but that is not the job of advertising. 
the job of advertising is to divorce people from their money. And it often involves, not always, but all, and there are different levels of this for sure, but it often involves trickery and deception and convincing and persuasion in a way that some people might see as unethical. I just see it as kind of gross and I don't want to participate in it. Before we started recording the podcast, we were listening to some nice 90s R&B in here. Mm -hmm. Now, can you imagine, TK, give me one of your favorite 90s R&B albums. Oh, man, uh, I'll go with Boys to Men 2. Okay, yeah, yeah. I think we were listening to a Boys to Men song earlier today. And imagine now if every third song, there was a 30-second commercial on the album. What would that do to the album? For me, it would ruin the experience. Absolutely. I, I think <clears throat> what I get out of this Seinfeld monologue, and, and there's an irony here that I'm extracting something serious from it uh, when he's being funny, is that it's all about the story you tell. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between being funny and being offensive. That's the difference between being happy and not being happy. If you take everything he said and you voice it as you are, you are wasting your time. You are pursuing stupid things. Everyone would have been so livid, but he put it all on himself. And he says, I love advertising because I love lying. Now it's not only funny, but it makes us see ourselves in a more honest way. But if he had said, all of you guys love advertising because you love lying, people's defenses would have gone up. Mm -hmm. So what, what a brilliant thing, right? Like he he gets the laugh and he entertains people, but he also acquires people's permission to challenge them to think in a way that he would have never gotten had he done it directly. And then on the happy piece, I love it because you say Emmys are nonsense, but what does our good friend say? That so is the rejection of the Emmy. Mm. So mm -hmm. is the idea of I'm too good for it or it's not good enough for me or it doesn't mean anything. It's all nonsense because the happiness and the unhappiness is all about the way we're narrating our lives. Mm -hmm. and some people may say, well, calling it nonsense weakens the happiness. No, it takes the sting out of that which is perceived to be the opposite. It's all the story that we tell. Yes. You know, it's, 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 it's not about what something's going to do for us. If everything stinks, then what's the way out? Mm -hmm. Realizing that it's not going to be the things that give our lives joy. It's going to be the story that we tell and the relationship that that leads us to form with things. And there's something about that nonsense as well that is really useful for me Yeah, because I tend to take things very seriously, whether it is a job title, an award, a trophy, a material possession, a luxury good, yeah. a car, a house, a couch, a bed, an end table. I take it seriously. But if I can just look at it and say, oh, it's all nonsense. This isn't a value judgment. When yeah. I say it's nonsense, I don't mean that it is bad and I shouldn't have it. But it also means I don't need to cling to it that it's so serious. Mm -hmm. And if I recognize that ultimately it's all nonsense, I get to play within the nonsense. That's incredibly freeing. Yeah, by the way, and we can go, we can drill into that literally. It's nonsense. It's not based on a logical argument for it being objectively true. It's just some stuff that I made up. Children's games are nonsense, but boy, are they fun. Yeah. Play is nonsense, but boy, is it fun. That limitation you have in the game, that rule you have to follow, it's not based on logic. 
It's not based on some rule you have to play by. It's something you made up and that's what brings the joy. Yes. Yeah. And so when we set up these boundaries, they're all made up as well. And if that boundary helps you better contain your joy, then it's serving its purpose. Mm. I'm going to skip Lindsay's voicemail from, save it for a future episode, Malabam. We got an obsolete object from her, and I think we'll go on a long digression. But I wanted to get right to our minimalist home tour. This is number 44 in our series. This is from Cindy, and we're calling it Retro Simplicity. Check Mm. out this kitchen that we have from Cindy. This is her retro kitchen. What does she have to say about it, Alabama? She wanted to show this off. Her whole house is actually retro themed, but this was my favorite that she sent me. And I loved what she said about it. She said, it's not a lack of color that matters. It's a lack of clutter. Yes. And what I really like about this is her kitchen, if you're just listening to the audio version, it is a kitchen that is really tidy free of clutter, and it's relatively monochrome as well, except there are these retro elements of the seafoam green fridge. You've got this oven hood that is seafoam green and just a small piece behind the stove that is also seafoam green. And it looks like the fixtures and even some of the wallpaper, which are monochrome, are all relatively retro, right? But it's these pops of color that really stand out and they stand out because they're on this canvas. And man, I, well, I wouldn't have this in my home personally. It's not my style. I look at this and say, I don't just respect it. I really, really appreciate the attention, the detail and the the level of restraint that goes into something like this. Mm. It captures the um, the proper relationship between simplicity and luxury. Like simplicity is not the opposite opposite of luxury; it's the foundation for luxury. And, and you see that relationship here. There's this backdrop of simplicity, but then there's this infusion with the luxury of color, and it's just so beautiful. It works. I love the retro simplicity. Oh, that's so good. I like the, the luxury of color because what we're doing is we're not saying I'm going to throw up a bunch of colors onto the canvas being intentional about what color do I want to use? Yep. What do I want to stand out here? Because you know it's going to stand out. Mm-hmm. Let's read some more about less. What's the title of this article, Alabama? This is called How Plastics Are Poisoning Us by Elizabeth Colbert. Professor Sean sent this to me. And I think for some people, this won't be new information, but I think understanding how overwhelmed we are by plastic in our modern world. This is not an indictment on plastic so much as it is trying to understand how all of a sudden everything is plastic. In 1863, when much of the United States was anguishing over the Civil War, an entrepreneur named Michael Phelan was fretting about billiard balls. At the time, the balls were made of ivory, preferably obtained from elephants from Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, whose tusks were thought to possess just the right density. Phelan, who owned a billiard hall and co-owned a billiard table manufacturing business, also wrote books about billiards and was a champion billiards player. Owing in good part to his efforts, the game had grown so popular that tusks from Ceylon, and indeed elephants more generally, were becoming scarce. 
he and a partner offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who could come up with an ivory substitute. A young printer from Albany, John Wesley Hyatt, learned about the offer and set to tinkering. In 1865, he patented a ball with a wooden core encased in ivory dust and shellac. Players were unimpressed. Next, Hyatt experimented with nitrocellulose, a material made by combining cotton or wood pulp with a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acids. He found that a certain type of nitrocellulose, when heated with camphor, yielded a shiny, tough material that could be molded into practically any shape. Hyatt's brother and business partner dubbed the substance celluloid. The resulting balls were more popular with players, although, as Hyatt conceded, they too had their drawbacks. Nitrocellulose, also known as gun cotton, is highly flammable. Two celluloid balls knocking together with sufficient force could set off a small explosion. (laughs) A saloon owner in Colorado reported to Hyatt that when this happened, quote, instantly every man in the room pulled a gun. (laughs) It's not clear that the Hyatt brothers ever collected from Phelan, but the invention proved to be its own reward. From celluloid billiard balls, the pair, the pair branched out into celluloid dentures, combs, brush handles, piano keys, and knickknacks. They touted the new material as a substitute, not just for ivory, but also for tortoiseshell and jewelry-grade coral. These, too, were running out, owing to slaughter and plunder. Celluloid, one of the Hyatt's advertising pamphlets, promised would, quote, give the elephant, the tortoise, and the coral insect a respite in their native haunts. Hyatt's invention, often described as the world's first commercially produced plastic, was followed a few decades later by Bakelite. Bakelite was followed by polyvinyl chloride, which was in turn followed by polyethylene, low-density polyethylene, polyester, polypropylene, styrofoam, plexiglass, mylar, teflon, polyethylene terephthalate, familiarly known as PET. The list goes on and on and on. Annual global production of plastic currently runs to more than 800 billion pounds. What was a problem of scarcity is now a problem of superabundance. Let's talk about that. So we'll put a link to the full article in the show notes, but no one is denying the necessity for plastic. There's plenty of plastic in this room. Parts of these microphones are speaking into our plastic. And I don't even see that being a big problem. In fact, even this pen is made of plastic. Well, not Professor Sean's pens. His are not made his of, fancy of gold. Uh, <laughs> this one is resin. This is a, it's got gold, but it's re- plastic resin. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, it's gold plated, <laughs> I see. Precious <laughs> resin, I think, is the marketing term. So I will say that there are certain things that are made of plastic, and I'm grateful that this microphone is made out of plastic and not from elephant tusks, mm-hmm. right? However, we have developed this throwaway culture where everything has become disposable even before we buy it. And everything is packaged in plastic, wrapped in plastic, delivered in plastic. It's plastic on top of plastic Mm -hmm. on top of plastic. And we have interviewed several environmentalists on this podcast and in our documentaries. And the biggest thing I've learned from them is that if you want your plastic to end up in the ocean, recycle it, which is so counterintuitive to me. 
And I've had several environmentalists say this. One even said to me off the or off camera, uh, and uh, what she said to me was that recycling is the opiate of the masses. Recycling makes us feel like we're doing something, but we're what we're actually doing is we are consuming a bunch of things that require plastic. And they don't actually require it. We don't have to have plastic. And what I've learned from this whole minimalism journey is that the fewer things I consume, the less waste, and specifically the less plastic waste that I produce. And then when I started being more intentional, even with my clothing, I don't buy synthetic clothing anymore because when we we wear polyester shirts or polyester pants or that those are plastics as well. And not only is that bad for our environment and landfills, et cetera, not morally bad, but it doesn't degrade the same way, but it's bad for our bodies, for our health to have these forever chemicals draped over our bodies and on our crotches 24 hours a day. And so what I want, the reason I wanted to bring this up is plastic, while it's 800 billion pounds a year. That's, I can't even fathom that. Most of us don't even think about it because Mm. we've entered a culture that is so disposable. And in our first documentary, Minimalism, Juliet Shore, the economist, she's a scholar of, of these things. And what she talks about is the problem isn't that we're too materialistic. The problem is we're not materialist enough. We think everything is disposable. And so we buy the one, the single use cup or whatever it might be, and we throw it out again and again. That's not morally wrong or bad. It just means we're living an unintentional life. And plastic has enabled us to be rather unintentional with the possessions and the things we bring into it. Mm. You know what I think when I, when I consider what you're saying and, and what Alabama just read, this is why we need innovators, creators, and entrepreneurs. This is why we need daring people that are willing to take risk, who don't just try to argue other people into the way they see the world, but who are willing to change the world that people see so that they can behave differently. When you think about how we got into this problem, it wasn't because most people were sitting around worrying about elephant tusks and where the billiard billiard balls were coming from. Most people didn't care, and they were content to just continue existing in the world as it already was. But there was a small number of people who were obsessed with that problem, and they gave themselves permission to be obsessed with introducing innovation in in an area where the world wasn't even asking them to do because they believed in something good, something valuable, even though society wasn't saying, this is the value we need to be focusing on. And they created a real solution to a real problem. But one of the challenges of abundance is that it satisfies in one area, but spoils us in another. It strengthens us in one area, but weakens us in another. It solves one set of problems, but always introduces a new set. And so now we're experiencing not only the benefits of abundance, but the consequences of it. And so how do we get out of this? We're not going to get everybody to obsess over this problem. We need people who obsess over creating new solutions. We have a need. Plastic is doing a good job of meeting that need, but we need to meet that need in a way that is healthier and more sustainable 
because the world isn't going to choose something differently unless someone dares to give them an option they're not asking for. That's why we all need to take our contribution seriously. None of us offers everything that the world needs, but we all have something to offer to the world that people aren't going to know they need until we dare to give it to them. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. Mm-hmm. And I would just append it with when we begin to be when we grow unintentional with our innovations, that's when the problems begin. I think about all of the benefits I've received from grounding. You can go back and listen to our grounding episode with Clint Ober. And that is a result. We became ungrounded when we, in 1960, began putting rubber plastic, essentially, on our shoes, disconnecting ourselves from the natural frequencies of the earth, becoming ungrounded. It wasn't intentional. It was an unintentional consequence of having nice, cheaply produced shoes that were really comfortable. But when we don't think about the consequences, when we're unintentional with our innovations, quite often that breeds some sort of illness, mental illness, physical illness, some sort of dysfunction in the culture. And we see that now in social media. You know, you talk about how dysfunctional things are. Well, the intention of social media was literally to connect, to become more social. But when we're unintentional with social media, it spurs that dysfunction. That's right. That's right. And we can't allow the fear of those negative possibilities to stop us from creating But like you said, remembering that creativity has to be combined with intentionality if it's going to be healthy and if it's going to not just make a positive difference in the now, but do so in a way to where our species continue, continues to flourish. For our added value segment this week, TK, how do you feel about, I know you enjoy listening to 90s R&B. Oh man, come on. But how do you feel about new music? Do you explore new music very frequently? I do, but that still doesn't make me hip or culturally relevant because just like people who are hip and culturally relevant, I explore in the genres that are interesting to me, right? So, you know, for anyone who's like, what, you don't know this rapper? I could be like, what, you don't know this jazz musician, right? We all got some stuff that we don't know because what we focus on. So I explore a lot, but I like a lot of jazz. I like a lot of electronica, you know, so I'm, I'm into stuff that's not typically, um, you know, going to be nominated for a Grammy Award. Right, yeah. right. But, but, but new music is important to me, man, because it's like it not only keeps things fresh and, and makes you come alive, but, it, but it, 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 it really does stimulate your creativity. You know, you don't want to just listen to the music, at least for me, that you grew up with and that you're comfortable with. You got to mix it up. Well, the song you hear in the background right now, this is from my favorite band. They're from Iceland. Sigaros, the lead singer, his name is Yonzi. He has this beautiful falsetto voice that sounds like an instrument. In fact, he sings in this made-up language. It's called Hopelandic. Hmm. And although the music itself is sort of nihilistic, I call it optimistically nihilistic music. Sigaros, they're an Icelandic band. It's mostly instrumental, but even his voice sounds instrumental. It almost, to me, it sounds like the soundtrack to an intentional life. And we've talked a lot about intentionality today. And quite often when I'm writing or working or just hanging out around the house, I'll I'll turn on Sigaros. And it is the soundscape 
for my everyday life quite often. And they have a brand new album out. The album is called Atta. And this is, I believe, the third song from that album. This is called Skell. All right, that's our maximal episode for today. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.